0: What should I rename myself to today?
1: The end of a dynasty. The sun sets. The Mahomes' sun is setting, and what a beautiful sunset it is!
0: <laughs> wow, you talk about him like he's Tom Brady.
1: Practically, is yes, with Joe Burr on the scene.
0: Okay, nobody's, nobody's now. Now, as old. who's talking crazy? Did I miss? <laughs> nobody's looked as old. Did I miss some football talk? No, I was saying we should just go ahead and we're like we keep. Dipping into the actual content, we should just get it going because that way we don't, you know, use up all the good juice.
2: This is the Baymaw podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co host, Brent Billings. Today we are back to discuss the lost son of Luke 15 and what it means to be lost in the first place. Oh, yeah. Hello. So we've done the Good Samaritan now and the Unforgiving Servant. Mm. We've got the lost son this week, mm-hmm. and then next week we're back with the rich fool. So we're yeah. almost there. Yeah, for this for this portion.
0: Yeah, also known as the prodigal son. Um, that's an okay title. I was uh, Brent. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about how I think most people don't know what prodigal means, and if they do, they're guessing based on what just they know of the story, and in that case, they're probably guessing the wrong definition, but. Uh we, we don't need to use that. I like I like the lost son um because you know it's we got the lost sheep and the lost coin. And so the lost son as part of that kind of uh triptych feels right to me. Um <clears throat> yeah, but I think we can go ahead and and dive in. We were actually Marty and I were kind of getting ahead of ourselves before we hit record. We were in the middle of a good conversation about the setting for for this parable for Luke 15. Um, so why don't we go ahead and just start a little bit and we'll, we'll dive right back into that conversation. Perfect. Okay. So Luke 15, uh,
2: now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them.
0: Okay. So the conversation we were having, um, is about where, where this story takes place um, cause I was reading some stuff in Eugene Peterson and he was talking about this idea of a, a travel narrative and he says, uh, you know, this travel narrative where Jesus is traveling through Samaria, um, and it goes from Luke nine to Luke 19. And then Marty, you said, wait a minute, there is no way that this goes for 10 straight chapters as a travel narrative. Uh, And so we started looking into it a little bit more. All due respect, by the way. All All due due respect, respect absolutely to Eugene
1: Peterson, because I love that man, and it makes me ask the question: Is Luke trying to present it? Not that it like not that historically happens that way for ten chapters worth of content, but is Luke wanting you to kind of? See it as a travel narrative, and I was intrigued by that concept. I still don't know if I see it, but I, I the concept intrigues me because it makes it, it would definitely phrase this story differently for sure.
0: Well, and as we're skimming through those chapters, uh, what emerged to me from nine to 19 is that Jesus is kind of all over the place. Um, he is, he's yeah, in and Galilee. One of the
1: places consistently at Samaria, yeah, like, he's there, he's definitely
0: in Samaria, yeah, he's on the border, he's in and out. Um, and it's it's not the most important point, but the reason why Eugene uh, brings it up and the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because he's suggesting if, if they're in Samaria and if these Pharisees are there in Samaria, that most likely means that they are following Jesus through Samaria. And
1: not just like physically following. You
0: mean let – me, let me clarify. Yes. Do you
1: mean like following – like not necessarily Talmudim, but right. like following G like they're 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 following his teaching. They are following a teacher, a rabbi, yes. Not just physically following him because they're checking on him or out to get him, but following Jesus, like a follower of Jesus.
2: Correct. Yes. That is that well, is Well, they would have to have like some kind of a scout who could at least like maybe not the whole group is following him day to day, but they have at least one person there to report on whatever he's doing at any point?
0: It could be. You could you could see it that way. The way that Eugene suggests is, uh, and, and he doesn't even say, like, I know this for a fact, but he's saying given the surrounding chapters and the context and the t- and the fact that sometimes Jesus is in Samaria or traveling right on the border, he he wonders out loud if there are Pharisees who are actually followers of Jesus. Not necessarily the called um, disciples, but they are invested in his teaching. They are kind of caught up in his way. And so they're following him throughout, learning from his teaching and uh, watching him do his ministry. That's what Mm -hmm. Eugene is suggesting. And the reason why I think that's worth bringing up is because, you know, we've got Pharisees here muttering or grumbling. They're grumbling, right, Uh, about Jesus— Eating with sinners uh, and tax collectors, and it's like the stereotypical. Oh, those Pharisees! They're so self righteous. They're so judgmental. You know, whatever word you want to use. Uh, and I, it, we tend to paint them with a really broad brush. Wouldn't you agree? Like the way we talk about Pharisees generally is like they're just kind of bad guys. Yes. Yeah. And so Eugene says, uh, and what I think is bringing up like maybe there's maybe they're not monolithic. Like maybe there are some Pharisees who are like that, but it's also possible that there are Pharisees uh, who are intriguing. I mean, like you've got the story of Nicodemus in John, right? That everybody's very familiar with. Uh, Not every Pharisee is that kind of wicked. Uh, gonna, like, judge you and look down on you any chance they get. And so I just want to try to, like, offer the possibility—just try to humanize our audience here in this parable. You've got tax collectors, you've got sinners, you've got Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they are grumbling. Let me jump in here and just please
1: give two cents to, like, I I totally think that, despite a travel discourse or not, is a totally— Valid reminder. Uh, Amy Jill has just come out with a new book, Brent. We didn't have it when we did session three. I haven't even read it yet. It's been recommended by everyone. Amy Jill is one of the foremost scholars today on Second Temple Judaism. Um, she's at uh, Abilene University, if I remember right. And uh, she wrote a book called Pharisees, I think. And something like that, the Pharisee or Pharisees. And she is writing that book to try to correct all of these stereotypes that read as speaking about and to, and I I think we made the point a few times, multiple times in session three, but I still wish we would have made the point even more clearly, which is what Reed is, is saying. The Pharisees were not a monolithic group. You had Pharisees that were Shammai Pharisees. You had Pharisees that were Hillel Pharisees. I think it's totally plausible, and I'm somewhat irritated that I haven't considered in my mind's eye— like, I haven't seen small groups of Pharisees following Jesus, because there would have been. There would have mm-hmm, been. Mm-hmm. There would have been Pharisees that agreed with Jesus' yoke and his teaching and following him. Sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, they're not the 12. They're not. But uh, plausible that they're going with him in Samaria. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't think we remember that enough. Is that... Is that what's going on in this story? Are these Pharisees? I'm not sure I'm there yet, but a very, very plausible, we should consider that more, Mm -hmm. even in this story, that that's that's who's around. Like, how many times do Pharisees come and ask Jesus? And sometimes we're told, like in the Greek, it's a test. Sometimes it's just a question. And I wonder how many times those are like Pharisees that are legitimately asking Jesus a question because they're legitimately following him, around him buying into his teaching, and they've got a legitimate
0: question. Yeah, and I think maybe a literary um, reason to think that maybe this this could be those kind of Pharisees who are following him around is because of this word grumble, and I want to get to that in a second, but I just want to say I do think it is so important for us to remember and to like uh, give nuance to the Pharisees, because here's the thing. I think uh, if we could see uh, the truth for what it is— Probably the characters that most of us here in American Christianity, evangelical Christianity, probably the characters we should most readily be identifying with are the Pharisees. But because we paint them in this kind of stereotypical way, we are blind to that. Like we don't see that they actually, that we are like them. And that's not, a, that's far from, uh, an attempt to, like, slam us for, oh, we're like the Pharisees, but more like, I think we'll get a lot more out of these stories um, when we recognize that we share some things in common with them, and maybe the way that Jesus speaks to them, we can hear it in a similar way, and it can affect us, hopefully, in a similar way. Um, Yeah, so it's important for us to remember.
1: I feel like, yeah, I think, and there's such a gradient scale, but I yes, like, there are let me see if this sounds as clever out loud as it does in my head so be careful. Um I feel like there is a a camp of religious folk whether it's pharisees in the gospels or today evangelicals that are self righteously religious. And then there are some of us who are religiously self righteous. Like I I when in the co- in the chosen commentary we had in this session in session 6 I talked Boy, about it'd be how helpful I, if
2: Reed had seen that.
1: I uh, mean, you know, I'll tell you, I talked about how I resonate with the Nicodemus character probably more than anybody in the whole series. Because I feel like I absolutely have a Pharisaical reality about I want to follow Jesus. I'm in on the gospel. But there's a little bit of my religious faith expression that gets in the way. Mm. But because we only focus on the Pharisees that are like radically self-righteous, we only fo- focus on that picture of them. Mm-hmm. I kind of get lost in the middle because there's only like these two camps and I'm not that. So obviously I don't have anything to learn from it. Right. And actually I feel very, I, I may not express my, and again, I try not to use Pharisee in like a derogatory way, but I try not to express that worldview in some of those extreme ways, but darn it if I'm not falling victim to that religious expression All the time.
2: Yeah. The book, by the way, is called The Pharisees by Joseph Severs and Amy Jill Levine. Perfect. Amy Jill is hyphenated. I was, I I don't know, I I misheard you or misinterpreted what you said. But yeah, it will be in the show notes.
0: Perfect. Okay, so we've got these Pharisees here and uh, they are grumbling, um, which our listeners, I I would bet that probably a lot of people are going to be familiar with where this is from. Uh, the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness uh, after the Exodus. And uh, Septuagint, it's the same in Exodus 16, it's the same Greek word for when they are grumbling. And so just think about that crowd for a second that maybe Luke is trying—and Luke, by the way, he's the only gospel writer who uses this word, uh, and he uses it twice— and if he is wanting to link us back to that story, then just think of those people wandering when they're grumbling. Like, would we say that they're grumbling because they're they're bad? Definitely grumbling because, uh,
1: uh, I mean, they're in the middle of a wilderness that they don't know and <laughs> they have no sustenance. And yes, um, I. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I, I, there... I would say
2: a lack of trust, maybe.
1: I was going to say there's like in the Hebraic usage, there's this idea of like a rebellion against leadership. Yeah. But I think I think I like Reed's point as well. Like, and maybe the two go together. Maybe there's this unfamiliar, I am in the wilderness with nothing. I have to rely on God. And it comes out in this rebellion against, And I don't know about leadership, but rebellion against like the teaching, the Moses. Mm-hmm. I mean, in here, it's going to be the Jesus figure. In the desert, it's the Moses figure. And there's like a rebellion against the things that Moses is trying to teach them.
0: I think in the wilderness, they're just looking around and, and it just doesn't make any sense. And they're not seeing how anything is any better. right? And they're like, well, back there, what we knew, that we were at least taken care of. And so the the link here, I think, it mm. suggests that the the Pharisees and maybe like a, if you want to call it like a spiritual way, they are in unfamiliar territory, kind of like how the Israelites following Moses were in unfamiliar territory. And I think they were in some unfamiliar spiritual territory as well, definitely wandering around in the wilderness. Um and I and I, I think probably what they're wanting is just some sense of uh maybe it's not all they're wanting, but probably it like any of us wants some sense of safety and security. Because I, I think we know the there is like a, a kind of discomfort or an unfamiliar spiritual territory um, that you might—that ha- some of us might have experienced when you find yourself, uh, like the Pharisees here with the, the tax collectors and and the sinners, where you find yourself living and practicing faith alongside people uh, that, to our eyes, like they they're threatening to tear down what we feel called to build up. So, you know, maybe you find yourself in a worship space, in a church— where there are people who like uh have it's like a maybe a moral thing you know where you think the way that they live their life isn't necessarily moral uh or you feel like their doctrine isn't necessarily orthodox or maybe it's like a a political thing but that discomfort is like it's like you you have a desire, and I think the Pharisees here, I'm going to presume, like they have a desire and they are making an effort to uphold their call to be set apart. Um, and they, I, it makes some sense to me that if this is the way Jesus is going, there would be a question of like, is this set apart if we are keeping company like this? Like maybe they're being judgmental, maybe they're being condemning. But maybe it's like, hey, we were supposed to be set apart in this way. Is this really doing that? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, there's like a sense that the whole ground underneath them is shifting. Yes. Um, That if that's not true, well, just like they would have felt in the wilderness when they grumbled. Like, Mm -hmm. that's why they want to go back. At least I knew what I was working with in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Here, I don't even know if we're going to live and survive. Where, uh, in the situation you're describing, I don't even know if we're going to theologically survive. I don't know if we're going to make it out. Right. on God's team if
0: we had the can't we just go back to the place where we know yes yes and it's like we want to stay on God's team and the like nobody would ever say that that's a bad desire uh to want to stay on God's team um, but we talked about you know blind spots that parables address and i think the blind spot here is that in in their desire and in their effort to stay on God's team to uphold that call to be set apart, they don't see that they are pushing away the very people that they are actually supposed to be looking for. Uh, and there's um, there there's there's a lot that could be said about looking for things, Marty. I know that you like love uh, this this teaching uh, on these parables. Um, I'm going to mm-hmm. go ahead and and just so so Jesus tells this parable, uh, verse three. And then that parable becomes three different stories. Uh, and they are all addressing a blind spot. And that, that blind spot is so that the, you've got the story of the sheep. You've got uh, what you know there's, there's like one out of a hundred sheep is missing. You've got the coin uh, out of 10 coins, one is missing. You've got the, the son, one out of two sons is missing. And the figure in the parable is going to look for that thing. And there are, there are some great connections. Uh, I, I know, especially in the sheep one, uh, there's some big remez going back to, uh, I'll just say, some prophets or a prophet uh, that is all about whose responsibility it is to be looking and seeking and finding and all of that. I'll leave that on the table because we have a lot to talk about in this particular parable. But just to say, if all of these parables are about looking and finding, then I think that means that the blind spot these Pharisees have is that they don't they don't see that they are pushing away what they are supposed to be looking for. Is that is that is that fair? Very fair. Okay. And, and I wish
1: you cho- you could find some parables. I mean, you had all the parables to pick from, and if you could find some that were more
0: relevant to where we live today, <laughs> oh my god, it right? would be more helpful. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. This just is very archaic. It's really hard to relate. I know it doesn't really hit you like in your gut or in your heart. Um, but you know, I wanted to th- give some I attention think you, to it. more you could obscure... say, I
2: think you could say that this parable is, is, uh, relevant for the zeitgeist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, throwback. All we- right. <laughs> With that, read here's, 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 here's what I want to do. Let's read the whole parable and then we'll go through it bit by bit.
2: Okay. Uh, so we are, we are jumping ahead to the the third portion of this parable. Correct. Just, to, just the to the lost son story. Yes. who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found.
0: Man, I just, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm back to explaining a joke thoughts where it's like, I do we should just, just let that be. Just let the parable do its thing, man. It's so good. That is so good. Okay. Uh but it is our job to to do some commentary, so <laughs> Undeterred. Let's please, dissect the swallow. Thanks for joining us on the Bay podcast. You can find us on Twitter. Please, Jesus, forgive me for dissecting your beautiful swallow. Uh here we go. Let's go back to the Unfortunately
2: for copyright reasons I can't just read. The NIV on the podcast and call it a day. We have to add something to it.
0: <laughs> okay, here we go. Let's let's add it. Uh let's go back to that uh verse eleven and twelve there.
2: Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate.
0: Okay. Uh let's stop here. Um, this is what gets the whole ball rolling in this parable. And uh, my my question is, how do you think we tend to hear this? Uh how does how does it Um, how would you guess that it strikes most of us? I don't know the right answer. I don't know what everybody thinks. Um, I know for me, like the way that I have tended to hear this in the past is kind of like when he says, give me my share of the estate. It's like, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to be out on my own. Um, And I'm, I'm going to leave home. So can you like, just give me what's mine and I'll get out of your hair. I mean, I feel like I could even imagine in our culture uh, this, this happening. Like I could imagine somebody making like the, the kind of, this is good. Uh, this makes good financial sense because of investing and blah, 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 whatever. So if you give it to me now, then we can make some more of it later. And like, maybe it's a little bit in poor taste, but I don't think it's like shockingly offensive. I don't know. What do you guys think? How do you, how do you think it, it would strike our, our ear?
1: Yeah. Without, uh, you know, without the context that I have today, I think that's how I viewed it before as well. Absolutely. Like he's just wanting to, he's kind of a foolish young man, naive, right. like any typical, you know, young person wanting to get out on his own. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. know
2: when I would have first heard that, you know, the the cultural significance of what he's asking for here. Because when I was growing up, like my grandparents were always talking to me, like, oh, do you want to have this someday? Do you want to have this someday? And like, there's one, this one little, like, yeah. Um, it's like a we use it for tea now. We have it um, at my house. My grandma ended up giving it to me before she died, which reinforces my initial uh view of this. But it was just like, oh, I I think this little set of boxes and drawers is really cool. Like, sure, I'd like to have that someday. But like I it wasn't like I <laughs> I don't know. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have demanded it ahead of time. Right. Right. But it was just like something to look forward to, something that's like obviously they enjoy it because they bought it. Yeah. And they're happy to know that I enjoy it and will cherish it after they're gone. Like, and it was just, I don't know, it was all this happy thing. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the yeah. kind of statement that I think this is actually supposed to be.
1: The shocking sin was never him asking for his inheritance and leaving the shocking sin was always prostitutes and wild living.
0: Yeah. It was what he did with it. It was like, well, yeah, you exactly. were, you were a fool with your money and now you're, now you're upside down. Wasn't that dumb. Or it was so immoral of you to go run around with all those women and party into the night. That was the problem. This was not the right. problem. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, I, my parents have even like, here, we want you to enjoy this before we go. So here are some things that would have been your inheritance, but you can just have them now. Well, and you were
2: talking about prodigal, like you said most people probably don't realize what prodigal means and the prodigal part refers to that other part of the story. It doesn't refer to this. Yes. It correct. refers to the, the wastefulness, the, yeah. the reckless spending of, of what he has. Like, yep, that's right. So, I mean, it, 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 makes sense that like they called the story that that's what the focus was.
0: So, uh, Kenneth Bailey is a name that we've mentioned many times. Uh, and he tells, um, about, uh, in his book, um, poet and peasant, uh, or through peasant eyes, they're they're both in the same volume on my shelf. But uh, he he talks about like he he's a scholar uh, and teacher who lived in the Middle East like his whole life, born to American parents, lived over in the Middle East. Um, and he tells about how for like 15 years he went around the Middle East, and he would always ask people about this situation uh, with this parable in the back of his mind, and he would he would ask uh, just regular people that he would come in contact with if this sort of thing had ever happened that they knew about, or if they thought that it would ever happen. And then, uh, and I'm quoting him he says, this is how the typical conversation goes for the last 15 years. Has anyone ever made a request like this in your village? And the answer is never. And then he says, could anyone ever make such a request? And they say impossible. And he says, if anyone ever did, what would happen? And they say his father would beat him, of course. And then he says, Why? and they say this request means that he wants his father to die uh it is there is no way to communicate hey i would like these things that are coming to me without also pointedly communicating uh basically i don't care if you're i don't i don't care if you you are alive like i would it would it would be all the same to me if you were dead so just go ahead and give it to me now
1: and it's not just a transaction it's because in their world the stuff is literally the father's until he passes away, and then it becomes yours. Mm-hmm. But while the father is still living, it's—so it's not just that he wishes he were dead because then the transaction could take place. Right. It's literally saying, I don't even associate your presence, your name, your legacy, your responsibility, your stewardship on this planet. Giving me my stuff because you, you're yeah. literally not even here.
0: Yeah, the word for property— uh, the father's property is, uh, it's, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure it's BIOS. It's his life. It's oh, like yeah. his, it's his, yes. it's his life that he's actually, and it's a substance of him that is going out to the sons. Uh, So then, of course, the question is like, what do you, uh, you know, hearing that, and I know people already know the story, but just if you don't know the story, if you've never heard it before, like try to hear it with those ears. What do you expect is going to happen to this snot nosed little kid when he says, you're dead to me, give me the share of inheritance. Like, what do we expect the father to do in the story? And of course, what we expect him to do is exactly what Kenneth Bailey was reporting in his interviews. Well, he's going to beat the crap out of him. He's going to give him a, a good what for so that the kid, you know, changes his stupid attitude and outlook on life and so that he isn't disrespectful and he doesn't, you know, all of those things. Uh, that's what the father ought to be doing. But of course, instead, uh, the next line So he divided his property between them. (laughs) So so the son is like, hey, drop dead. And the dad's like, okay. Which which just brings me to, like, I think one of the most informative things about parables is just how insane God is sometimes portrayed as being in the parables. Like Jesus doesn't really have a lot of, uh, it doesn't seem like he has a big sense of propriety about God. He is willing to cast him in these, like what would be, I think like there's something pretty, I don't know, uh, like cowardly. Like, I think the audience would be like this, this man is not like, uh, you know, he's not really a man. Like he's weak. He's just bending his knee to his son. Like what kind of a man is that? Right. It just seems totally insane. Like you think about other parables, That we're going to get to like the king in the unforgiving servant parable who has somehow let a servant run up a debt that is like 10 billion lifetimes worth of debt. Like you're going to bankrupt your kingdom, dude. That's like a really stupid financial policy or the the laborers in the vineyard when he's like paying the guys who have worked for an hour, an entire day's wage. Like if we have any business owners here who pay employees, like you're not going to stay in business very long doing it like that uh, even like in this same chapter, like the, it always seems weird to me that a shepherd would leave 99 of his flock to go find one. Um, because if you think of it as a, like a financial investment, it's like, oh, well, if there's potential danger to the 99, better just leave the one, uh, and stick with those ones. Or
2: like, like in the Good Samaritan story, the format that you expect is the priest to the Levite and the Pharisee, but it ends up being the priest, the Levite and the Samaritan.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, 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 uh, I I think there's, there's another thought I had about this, um, that God is willing to, to, or God, sorry, I'm going to go back to the story. the The father in this parable at very much his own expense is willing to just let this son go and do this thing. Uh, That it's like, you're going to make a big mistake. And of course the father, like the father's got to know, right? Like he's, he's got a sense, like, it's probably not a very good idea for this, for a kid to have all of this inheritance, but he lets him go and do it anyway. Like he, he lets, he lets him make mistakes at his, the father's own expense, which for attentive listeners, I think, well, at least for me, it makes me like gut check OK, so the people that I know, even my own kids, like what what is my response to people that I think are going to like make a big mistake or that they're living the wrong way? Like the fair uh, the, the tax collectors, those people who are like living foolishly, like do I have it? What does it take? What does it say for somebody to like let them go? Because I think there's a way of looking at it that's like, well, you are just uh, giving up on them or you're not doing your due diligence to like teach them the lessons that they need to know. And it's not that I'm against like teaching people lessons and stuff, but just there is some kind of wisdom in this person is going their way and I'm going to let them go.
1: I think it's fair enough. I, I Yeah. I Like it goes back to when we talked in the intro episode about right and left-handed mm. power, like yeah. at all these moments where we're like, okay, but now's the time for right-handed power. Right. And God's just like, well,
0: I ain't baking bread yet. And right. right-handed power is just not gonna really work. Oh, I like I like the way you say that. I'm not making bread yet. Like the time's gonna come. Yep. But I'm not doing yep. it right now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's 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 move on a little bit.
2: Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Mm.
0: <laughs> How are things going for our, for, our, for our boy here? About as well as we thought they would for the young fool. Oh, well. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> things, uh, things I don't know what he had in mind. I don't know what he was hoping life was going to be like. Uh, maybe that, that however long that period of wild living was like, maybe it was pretty good. Maybe it was pretty fun. Maybe it was pretty enjoyable. Uh, but it has left him in a rough spot. Um, so he's off in a distant country, uh, and he's squandering his wealth, um, which I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give away a ton from, uh, Marty's, Marty's lessons, uh, when you go travel and do the, the study trips with him, uh, but it is, uh, fair to say that when Jesus says he's going to a far-off country or a distant country, uh, he's he's going to the world of the Gentiles, right? Like he's leaving his uh, Jewish community and home, and he is going to a faraway place where the Gentile people live. And it's it's like bad enough to break with your community like this, I think, but then also to like squander your wealth to. The Gentiles, like, I think culturally that that would that would have some consequences that would have some implications uh, to take uh, all that your father had worked uh, and uh, worked to gain and given to you. And then you go and you you ask for it, saying you're dead to me. And then and then you just lose it. But you don't even just lose it. You lose it to a bunch of Gentiles uh, in a far off country. And. Then the famine, the famine comes in, and there's probably more that can be said about that. And I, I think we'll we'll come back to the famine thing. Um, and he beca- he he begins to be in need, and so he hires himself out to a citizen of that country, and the citizen f- sends him to feed pigs. And uh, that that word for hired himself literally is he glued himself. He glued himself to a citizen of that country. And the picture that we should be getting here is that the the son is obviously like he's in a really rough way. He's in dire straits. And so he just kind of like clings, throws him, attaches himself to somebody saying like, you have to help me. You have to help me. I've got nowhere to go. Like everything, uh, I- any chance I have of making it through is going to depend on you. You got to give me a shot. Like I need a shot, right? I need you to take care of me. The
1: break idea here would be like cleaving the same yes, idea we use yes, for marriage. Yes. Like that is the word. Yeah. He's going to cleave to, he is a covenantally attaching himself relationally to yes. the group of people that is the opposite of what he actually belongs to.
0: Oh yeah. And what happens? He gets sent to feed pigs. Uh, and Kenneth Bailey points out that the, the culturally, uh, the, the polite way to get rid of somebody that you don't want around, like you don't just tell them, like, leave, go away. Uh, the, the polite way to, uh, to give everybody a chance to save some face is uh, you're going to give them a task like, OK, yeah, I'll take you. But you give them something that's like so bad that you think that they would rather go away than do that thing. Uh, And so he's like, here, you take care of the pigs uh, and that's as bad as it, as it gets. And I don't know if there's any like particular Jewish perspective on that, that, that you would have Marty. Um, But the guy actually, like, I guess it's so bad that he actually accepts, like he does the thing that this guy, like the worst thing he could think of to try to get rid of him. The guy does it anyway. And so, and maybe
2: he even knows he's a Jewish guy. It's like there's that's, no way that's what he's going to take this offer.
0: That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like he's he he won't do this. It's pigs. And the guy's like, I don't care. I'll do it. But just the the picture of the shambles that this life has kind of come to. So he's cut ties with his community. He's lost everything to Gentiles and reckless living. He's doing this shameful work for a Gentile employer who doesn't even want him around, and then he's living among gentiles as a jew and it says nobody would help him uh beyond that he he was he was hungry but no one would give him anything so this guy um is basically utterly rejected he has been utterly rejected um after he has uh torn himself from this community and this is a thing that like if 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 word gets around back where he came from uh this is going to be taken like extremely seriously the way that he has gone. And people talk, right? They're going to know the news. Um, It's going to be taken extremely just the seriously. the initial
1: action itself would have led to oh, community rejection.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It has to. And then you add all of this on top of that. And so it's going to be, it's going to be not just the family, but the whole village, right? They, they are going to have strong feelings about this. And so if this son comes back home, like we, we should expect him to be dealt with like very severely by the community. Like he's, he's coming up the hill and they see him and they're, they're going to, I mean, these villages, they're not like gigantic cities, right? Like people know, people know the business. They see people coming in, like, uh, they see people coming up the road. It's no secret. And what do we expect? I don't know. Uh, We expect, uh, at the very least, like the guy's going to get accosted, right? Like he's, he's going to be yelled at he's going to be shamed he's going to be cursed maybe even they're going to they're going to come out and like give him a beating
1: yeah yeah bailey suggests that there's you know a, a ceremony they call kazaza mm-hmm. where they they literally have a public ceremony saying if this man ever shows his face again he's a dead man like we'll stone him to death and that could very well i don't know if that's in the story but bailey says this is the cultural expectation and right he could very well not just like be shamed but lose his life if he ever comes back.
0: Mm. Okay. Let's move on a little bit. We'll come back to this.
2: When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants.
0: Okay. So here we get, um, we, we get a glimpse. Things, things are really bad. He's not going back yet and we're getting a glimpse into his interior life into his mindset. And this happens sometimes in the parables you get characters kind of just talking out loud to themselves. Um I think it's kind of maybe there's a comedic element to it. Um and and this is so important I think and kind of understanding what the significance of what he's saying is like really kind of actually turned my understanding of this parable and of what the parable is talking about it's turned it upside down. Because I used to think that the message of this parable was that um, if I have gone off and, you know, squandered whatever God has given me, and if I've lived recklessly and immorally and all of that stuff, that I need to come to my senses and I need to repent and return to God so that God will forgive me. And... That means that like the primary, the proactive part in the process here for the son, or if I'm thinking about me and God, the primary proactive part is mine to do. I've got to realize the error of my sinful ways. I've got to feel sorry. I've got to call on the name of the Lord. And then God's part is like the reactive one. So if I do those things, then he will accept and forgive me because of my contrition, right? Is that, I mean, is is that like a, yeah. That's, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's like yeah. a common. That's like a common understanding of like the way that transactionally, like, uh, grace works, or you know, it's like, there's like a common, commonly I think held kind of theology in there that a lot of us grew up, that I grew up with, at least. You got? Do you guys relate to that?
2: Yeah, like God's not obligated to do
0: anything until until you actually like make a step of faith. Right. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Okay, so is that what's going on here in this parable? Um, we've got, we, what, what is it? What does he say? So he says, he's talking to himself. He's like, here I am starving to death or, and, and I'm going to go back. And this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. It's in the text, man, Marty. I was going to, I was going st- <laughs> to, you just ruined that's, my chance. That's what I do. I'm practicing do. <laughs> being a mini you right now. And I was about to say, do you know where it you is? Paused you, know where too that long. Goes? you paused too long.
1: You knew I was going to pounce <laughs> on that pause.
0: Sorry. Okay. It's in the text. You guys know where it is? You just did it again. <laughs> it's in the text. It's in the text. Okay. So this guy, uh, he's he's quoting another c- character in scripture um, who says this exact line, more almost exactly this line. And also, I think it's interesting to note that this other character is also saying this line in kind of similar conditions. There are these famine conditions that have set in uh where this uh this person or this person who speaks for this nation is beginning to be in need because some really bad things have happened to their their food supply. Uh you guys know what I'm talking about, right? I do. You yes. do. And Brent, I bet you do because you can see it in the notes right there. Yeah, we're all staring at the documents. Yeah, I'm okay. Sorry. So Pharaoh so we're talking about Pharaoh. <laughs> immediately and this this actually comes in Exodus ten immediately after the eighth plague. The grains and the fruit trees, they've just been destroyed. The livestock's already been destroyed before that. And Pharaoh says to Moses, he quickly summoned Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Pretty close to I have sinned against heaven and against you.
1: Uh, a Jewish person would have said that to his Jewish father because they don't say God. We talk about that with uh, Matthew. Yes, so Matthew yes, yes, says yes. the kingdom of heaven, heaven versus the kingdom of God. So God, heaven is the replacement word. It's yeah. the pseudonym that they use for
0: God. So he's saying the same thing. I've, he's quoting, so <laughs> Jesus is giving this maybe repentant son the words. He's putting Pharaoh's words in his mouth. And then what Pharaoh says right after that in Exodus 10, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. What does Moses Uh, What are they asking for? What do they keep asking Pharaoh for over and over again? Let us go. Right. Let us go. And Pharaoh is like, I've sinned. Please forgive my sin. And also, (laughs) and also what? Pray that he would take this deadly plague away from me. That is, that is not, okay, you can go. Right. He's, he's, Pharaoh is only saying this so that he can get the plague removed and he he and the son are similar in this way, like they're both trying to just kind of seize an opportunity because their primary concern, it's not doing what is right. It's not relationship. It is they have needs and things are in a bad way and they've got to get them solved. So when the son says, I have sinned against heaven and against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your uh, hired servants. Um, I, I think we should be questioning at this point. Is he repentant? Like, do we think of Pharaoh as a role model for repentance, if that's the character we're being linked to, is our first thought? Like, oh, yeah, Pharaoh, he was so penitent. He was so humble before God. No, of course not. Like, he's the opposite of that.
1: Well, and we're told his reasoning. He's he like, he's like oh, man, the conditions here are horrible. This is what I'm going to go say. He right. doesn't say, oh, the conditions are horrible. This is what I've done and why I'm here. Like oh, you're, talking is, well, you're talking about the son. You're talking about the son. The yeah. yeah, the son is like, well, here's what I'm going to go say to fix my condition. But there's no, like, actual internal wrestling match. Or
0: So he says, I'm no longer worthy to to be called your son, which sounds like contrition, right? That sounds like, oh, he feels bad. But then he also says, make me like one of your hired servants or, like, literally fashion out of me a hired servant. What's a hired servant? A hired servant is somebody who, uh, they're just, they're just like a contract employee. They work freely, they make their money. And here's what's key to note. They're not somebody who's living in the master's house. They're living on their own. They're independent. They're living in the village somewhere. And this is what the son is wanting the father to make him. And so what's going to happen if if the father says yes to that, the son is still going to have the same rift between him and his father uh, he'll he'll be gained to his father as an employee, but he's going to remain lost to him as a son. And so it it really seems like I, I I'm starting to see this guy in a way different light, where like maybe his intentions aren't actually to reconcile with his father. I have never noticed that detail before. May, maybe it's just I need to repay him. I don't need to reconcile with him. Like, yeah, I, I don't need to be his son. I don't need to be submitted to him underneath him. Like, I'll just be we we'll, will kind of just be equals like I've broken from the house. I'll be uh, a worker. Bailey says uh, he just says it like this. He says he will save himself. He wants no grace. He doesn't need grace. He recognizes, like, oh, my bad. I threw away your money. Let me repay you. But then what will happen after that? Like, what do we imagine if he becomes the hired worker, he works enough to pay off all of the inheritance, he repays, he recoups everything to his father, and then what happens?
2: Well, do you think it's because he doesn't think restoration is possible? or because he doesn't actually want restoration? That's a good question.
1: I, I don't think there's anything to suggest the former. I have to assume the latter. In the Ramez work, in the language that's used, there's no indication in my mind, at this point in the parable especially, we'll see what Reed has to say later, but at, at this point in the parable, there's no indication that there's any
0: contrition. It's just a plan. I think that's I think that's right.
2: Right. Now, what What I'm saying is, does, does the Son... Does he think like, oh, I, I now realize how serious it was what I, what I did and said. And I realize.
1: Yeah. I I don't think there's anything in the language to suggest that.
2: Maybe he doesn't grasp it because if, if it's true that they would get together and say, yeah, this guy's dead to us. And if he comes back, we'll make sure he's dead. Like if he, if he actually understands that, why would he go back? But if he doesn't actually, if he just wants to save himself like, why doesn't, I mean, I guess he can't get anybody else to hire him, but just, I don't know. It just seems, it's, it's a weird thing.
0: I think that's the key thing is like where he's living in that community, whatever community he's in, nobody wants him. Nobody's going to help him out. Couldn't he just go to any
2: other community where nobody knows who he is? Nobody saw him squander anything. Well, based on the earlier behavior,
1: I think he knows the father is somebody he can take advantage of.
2: Well, that's true. Uh, yeah, I mean, now
1: we're thinking a, yes. like, now we're thinking like Westerners, but that's a very abstract, disconnected comment, but I, I no, I like. think
0: I think you're right, Marty. I think that's totally valid. Yeah. I I think his cuz I think I I think it's very reasonable to think that his impression of his father is that dad is a pushover.
2: Yeah, and he has been by our metrics he has been. Right? Well, and by their cultural metrics. <laughs> like like he should have he should have beaten his son right. into submission and and yet I mean, I, I could just imagine the the jaws on the floor right. of everyone else in that family, everyone who works for him, like seeing that happen and like, what?
0: <laughs> so sure. Okay. All right. Let's, let's go on because we're getting to the heart of the story now. And we're on track for about a four hour, four hour episode. At the moment, cool. So. It'll be good. Yeah, it will be great. <laughs> poor,
2: uh, poor Reed. That's what happens. Um, that's
0: what happens when you pick these really obscure, dry kinds of parables. You got to just do a lot of explaining.
2: Yeah, should have gone with the kingdom of heavens, like treasure hidden in a field. Boom, Boom done. <laughs> okay. Uh, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him.
0: Man, it get, it gets me. It gets me every time. Like, there's just every single word in this sentence. These couple of sentences, like every single word, I feel like you could just like, uh, you could just savor, you could roll it over in your mouth. You could, you could chew on it for a long time. Um, here, here are the things that, that we want to focus on the compassion word. I want to point that out, um, because we're going to come back to that. It's actually a big feature in a couple of the biggest parables. Um, the word is my I'm not probably saying that right. Um, but it it literally means uh to be moved in your gut, like all the way down in your in the depth of your gut, like in your bowels. You're feeling like uh you're moved uh, with just like you're d- intense. You're
1: doubling over, like you're you can feel it so much. You're hunching. You're... Yes,
0: and it's like just an intense emotional like experience that you have for another person. And so, if you remember what we talked about with uh the Good Samaritan. This word, when it comes up in the parables, uh, and even in the Gospels about Jesus himself, the the experience of my of compassion, it always, 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 always leads to that person acting to save the person that they are having compassion for. There's no way that you feel compassion, and then you just turn around and walk away. There's no way that you feel compassion and you're like, yeah, I'll get to it later. There is an urgency that my compassion for your situation means that I have to do what I can to save you and to save you now. So the father runs, uh, which some people may be familiar with. uh, There's there's a that's not something that you do. In this culture, like men do not run, Uh, Marty, when we were in Israel over the summer, I was actually thinking about this and looking out the window everywhere we went, and I just never, ever saw a man in a hurry to go anywhere. Everybody just walks. To this very day, it would be
1: very uncommon, maybe in a very modern uh, modern, very urban setting in city, it might change, but not not in a cultural setting at all.
0: Right, because there's something shameful about that, and so again, it's like, oh, here's the father, he's a pushover, he's weak, um, and and the question is why, and this is where I want to bring it back to, uh, we were talking about what kind of severe consequence we would expect from the community, and uh, Marty, this is actually something that I learned from you when you came and preached on this at CCF, uh, that <clears throat> this this idea that the father is running because what he needs to, what the son needs to be saved from is the community. He's like, these people are going to come. They're going to beat him. If I don't get there first, which, you know, there are some twisted versions of theology where we think that what we need saving from is God. God has to save us from God. Uh, And if, and if that is the way that we think, then I think we should uh, really take this parable into serious consideration in this light uh, that maybe more what we need to be saved from is the community around us that is looking to shame us. God, God doesn't need to shame us. He doesn't Ooh. need that, right? <laughs> am I am I wow. am I am I firing on some cylinders here? I,
2: yeah. yeah, I think that's that's got something.
0: I mean, I'm getting I'm getting too far ahead of ourselves.
1: But now I'm just thinking of the setting of the parable and
0: yeah, yes, yes, what yes, Jesus,
1: yes. What Jesus is embodying and yes. what he's trying to do is save. Yes, all these outsiders. These tax collectors and sinners, I just, man, I'm ahead of ourselves, but I I I felt it in my gut.
0: My splug needs, so my. We'll get to it a little bit, but I do want to say like, there's, (laughs) there's some, the, the way that you teach that in Israel is just so, so good. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to ruin all of that. Um, But he's, so he's running. He wants to save him. And also think at this point, like, what does the father know about the son? What has the son done so far? Like he's coming up over the hill. What has the son done? What has he said? What does the father know about what the son has been doing or uh, what is, what does he know of the son's like mindset or his heart? What does he know? Nothing. Nothing at all. (laughs) He doesn't know know anything. He doesn't know anything. Literally, he's just, he just sees the son coming. I'm going to guess because he's watching for him. There's some theology for you, but the son has not repented. He has not confessed. He hasn't even tried to get out his, you know, his whole plan for make me a hired servant. He's hasn't... not waving
1: a white surrender flag nope, as he comes over the he's just
0: walking up. Who knows, right? And I'm, I'm going to now theologize a little bit and say, apparently, God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need the repentance or the confession or the I'm so sorry speech in order to run toward us in order to embrace and kiss us he doesn't need a speech about feeling bad he doesn't need a promise to do better he apparently doesn't even need us to feel bad then this is like the challenge this is a challenging thing about this parable for me is <clears throat> as far as i know from the narrator's point of view this son still has some twisted motives right yep. and yet the father goes out and it's like i don't care any 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 open doorway i have any chance i have i am going to run to you and so, to, what I'm, to
2: use your previous terms, God is being proactive here.
0: Ah, yeah. Or, uh, the, he is the, the proactive one, right? And so, repentance is not a gatekeeper for forgiveness. It's not a gatekeeper for, for forgiveness. Far from what I originally thought about <clears throat> the need that I have to do all of these things, um, if this parable is really talking about this subject, apparently, all that's needed from me or for me to be embraced by God is like, all I have to do is I come to the end of myself and I realize I'm screwed. And maybe I have some kind of plan, you know, but that's really all we can say about this kid is he's at the end of his rope and he doesn't have another recourse. And that's all that needs to happen. And God runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. And then what does the son say?
2: The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son.
0: Period. Okay, so here's our here's our Pharaoh line again, but uh, what line is missing from the end?
2: I mean, he doesn't say "Make me like one of your hired servants," but I, Uh yeah, but I what? do wonder what? what's going on here because mm-hmm. the father the father is hugging him, and like I don't know, I I feel like I know what it's like to have somebody just squeezing me as hard as they can, <laughs> and I'm like trying to say something, and it's <laughs> like I can't really. I mean, obviously I can talk, but yeah, the next, the next verse, Yeah. the next verse. The father like said we, to his servants, quick, like yeah. he's, it yeah. seems yeah. like he's interrupting him,
0: yep. but I don't know. Yep. It seems that way. I don't know. This is what Marty and I were arguing a little bit about in Israel. And honestly, yeah, I knew where Reed was going. So I was trying to cut him off at the pass here. At the end of the day, <laughs> you were trying to interrupt me like, like you think the father is interrupting the son.
1: I really like your point, Brent. I really think that you're right. I think the father interrupts <laughs> him here. He kind of is trying to get it out. He's still not repentant. Yeah, I like that, Brent.
0: That's good. I don't. I don't know.
2: I don't I mean, know. It could, it could <laughs> I be, think it could I... be the father does step back as the son is speaking, like he, like his son is addressing him, father, and that's like he's he's not saying, "Hey, man," like he's saying, "Father." He is addressing him in that. So maybe the father is stepping back and listening to his son.
1: Yeah, like it's like it, and then know, there's like this pause, verse,
2: and he just sits with it. It's like no, ridiculous. Quick, get the best rope, like. Uh-huh. Maybe that yeah. is all the sun says. I don't know.
0: Yeah. No, that's, all those so, details are included in verse 21 B. Here here is here is why I like <laughs> it if he doesn't interrupt him. And at the end of the day, I actually don't think this is a huge thing, but here's why I like it if he doesn't. Because if he's not interrupting and the sun is getting it out there, and Jesus is intentionally leaving these words out of his mouth. What that means is there's a change in this guy's mindset now. That he's not interested. Like, yes, he feels the contrition of I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And maybe he doesn't know what else to say beyond that. But he's dropped the plan. He doesn't have a plan anymore to try to, like, uh, you know, get even with his dad. He doesn't want to live outside of the house. Uh, and so some kind of change has happened. But it, it, I think the the key thing is that this is all after the father has embraced him. Mm. This is all after he has kissed him and accepted him. Uh, and and it shows me, and I don't think this is, so Marty and I, we disagree about like, is the guy changed at this point or is he not? Is the father interrupting or is he not? But I don't think that Marty would disagree that the idea that I'm coming away with is the only thing that really can transform us is to experience the mercy of God. And 100%.
1: Rabbi Paul would say it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance.
0: Boom. Yes. So we need to stop assuming that there are like all these barriers and hurdles that we need mm. to clear in mm-hmm. order to be forgiven. Like we don't we don't need to change or make up our mind about something or say a certain prayer or whatever, and then we are forgiven. Mm-hmm. I, I think instead we realize we're at the end of our rope and that in that moment when we realize that God is already there embracing us, mm. he's already there. Yep. And then because this, ki, this kid is like so surprised, so blown over by uh, God embracing it, then, or the father embracing him, mm-hmm. then maybe there comes a chance after, like, then they'll, they'll have some conversations, right? They're going to be, there's probably going to be some confession, some repentance, some expression of sorrow and all of that. But it's specifically the mercy, the kindness, the grace that causes that to come about and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. has, that has so many implications for the way we think a lot of things should go when it comes to preaching and evangelizing and how we treat people who are on the outside and how we treat people who we think are throwing away their lives. And is it my job to moralize at them? And is it my job to make sure that they know everything they did wrong and set them on the righteous path? Is that what's really going to change them? This story says no. That is not what is going to change them. Unbelievably, almost impossibly what is going to change is a merciful gracious unwarranted surprising embrace that doesn't care doesn't need to know right ugh now we're preaching okay yeah we're going to we're 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 going to get through this last part <laughs> That feels like a great place to close, but this story's not over. Should we, should we close? We can, I mean, okay. I no, mean, we gotta, okay. we gotta right, keep right, going. Right,
2: we gotta, go. I'm just okay. saying, if you did close it right there, like that that feels like a satisfying conclusion. But the story isn't over. It's not exactly.
1: over. Exactly. Yes, thank you, Brent. Jesus doesn't. like You You expect Jesus to close the parable there. Like What a parable. Holy smokes. What a parable. But, he, but Jesus is like, nope, not the closing.
0: Okay, so go ahead with the next uh, verse here. Uh, and actually, let's just go 22 through 24 here, Brent. But the father said to his servants,
2: quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate.
0: So there's some really good stuff that I'm going to leave out for now from Capen about partying. Uh, shout out to my people who were with me in Israel, uh, when we were on the trip and we sat in the hotel lobby and I read you the whole thing about, uh, the party is what it's all about. Uh, that's about this parable. Um, I guess just come on a trip, everybody, the next time I'm on one and I'll read it to you too. Or read, or read Capin. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll read it. Okay. So, uh, this really does feel like this right here should be the end of the parable if it's going to fit the same form with the other two in this triplet. Uh, so the, the sheep one, the, the lost sheep, how it ends, it says, then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep, the coin one, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. This one right here, let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And that really, like, if it's going to be a mirror of the other ones or follow the same form, this is where it should end, right? And this is where they begin to celebrate, right? And this is where our context setting comes back in. And who is Jesus? Like, what's the setting here? Who's listening to him?
1: Pharisees and the teachers of the law, whether it's followers of his or not. Whether it's followers
0: of his or not. And what were they doing? Grumbling. They were grumbling. Grumbling. And grumbling feels like the opposite of partying to me. Like if you're going to be a grumpy goose, you're not really in on the party. Yep. And so I, I, they began to celebrate and I don't want to steal too much of your thunder here, Marty, but it's so brilliant because I really do imagine Jesus is looking at them when he says they began to celebrate and I can almost hear him saying, right to them in a pointed way. And I wonder if at this point the Pharisees, have realized by now who jesus is talking about with this deadbeat failure of a son if we now if we kind of it's i picture like the parable is happening on a stage in a theater and we've seen all the action we've seen the actors and now the house lights are coming up and we remember who's there listening and watching Mm -hmm. and the question is i i i hear a question behind the statement that is uh asking are the pharisees going to let themselves be caught up in the party Are they going to be glad at what the father has found? Are they going to uh, be glad that what they have received uh, is their very brothers and sisters? Will they recognize? uh, Will they remember that they also have been called to this same very, uh, this work of looking and finding? Uh, that's, That's the question. And then we get more. We get more of a story, which... Uh, Eugene Peterson, he talks about it as a fourth story. I think about it more like an epilogue to the story, but it definitely feels distinct because of that conclusion we kind of, that formed conclusion we just read. Let's keep going.
2: Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing.
0: Now, for the first time in this triplet, we see what's happening like... As the party is going on, the other ones it's like the party's going. Like call the party, and then it's like end, and you just go to imagine. And what's I think it's an interesting sh- uh, the scene shift is now outside the walls. We hear the music and the dancing like through the walls. We're outside. Let's keep going.
1: So so you're saying that there's like this whole thing, this whole triptych story has -hmm. been about God and lost things, like God and Mm -hmm. sinners.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: now all of a sudden there's like, oh, yeah, but there are other characters in the room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are like, there's a whole other part of the story because this whole thing has been this beautiful story between God and sinners. But there's a whole character that's been unaddressed the whole time outside the party.
2: Absolutely. Yes. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him.
0: What did the father do? He went out again. He pursued yet another son. And I keep, and now I'm thinking like, and maybe I'm crazy, but I'm like, is there another final thing that's lost? Is there one more lost thing here? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the father going looking sure. for like yep. one more time? And, you, and, and Eugene Peterson points this out. He's like, you've got the sheep, and it's one out of a hundred, and you've got the coins, and it's one out of ten, and you've got the first son, and he's one out of two, but now we've zeroed all the way in, and we're at one out of one. Like, there is one thing that is lost, and Ooh. he is going out to look
1: for it. To, put it. to put it in Tim Keller's words, you have two sons that are both separated from the Father. One is separated from the Father with his rebellion, and yes. the other is separated from the Father through their righteousness.
0: Yes. Oh, it's so brilliant. It's actually the, way he the says righteousness that. that separated them from, from the Father. Wow. Okay. Remember how we said that this was totally irrelevant? I'm starting to wonder if maybe this parable is relevant. <laughs> and we have a three, then four situation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. boom. Before, so before, oh, I'm so glad you said that, Marty, about Keller. Because before we said the blind spot. Was that the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law and their desire to, and their effort to uphold their call to be set apart, they couldn't see that they were pushing away the very people that they were supposed to be looking for. Mm. And I don't want to take yep. that away because I think that is true. Yep. But I now wonder if we look at it like this, God is going out looking, maybe there's a final lost thing. Maybe the deeper blind spot is that in some way of speaking, the Pharisees are themselves also lost. Mm. Yes. And also looked for and yes. also found. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, all right, man. Oh, okay. Zinger. That's a zinger. I know, man. It's such a zinger.
2: If we look at this as one whole big travel narrative where he's got the same group of people who's with him, more or less, through this whole time following him around. Earlier in Luke, uh, what was it, 10, with the Good Samaritan, the Pharisees expect to be in the story. They expect priest, Levite, Pharisee, and then they're not in the story. And so maybe they're here thinking like, oh yeah, I'm not in this story. And then you get the older son and it's like, oh no, I am in this story.
1: Mm, I was actually the last thing the whole time that God was ultimately going to come after.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. Now we're preaching. Now we're rolling. Okay, Brent, I think it's time to, I think it's time to kind of just wrap this up and take it home. So let's just go 29 all the way through the end here.
2: But he answered his father.
0: And scene, curtain drops. Uh, and there's so many things that we could say about this. So many things about this final paragraph. We could talk for another half hour, uh, and I don't want to do that. Um, I want to point out uh, that obviously the, the end is missing. Uh, it, it is incomplete because we're not getting like any more mention of a celebration if that's going to go on. Because every time we've heard lost and found, we've heard party. Um, and so to me, it just poses the question, uh, like if he's again, looking at the Pharisees as the lost thing, and it's like, are you going to let yourselves be found so that we can keep celebrating because you're outside the party and found is like inside the party and nobody's keeping you out of the party, but you, the door's open. Come on with me. And we don't know. We get to we get to finish the story. It's up to the Pharisees in the room to finish the story for themselves. And and maybe there's a hint, like at the way, at what's really, uh, keeping them out. And and maybe sadly part of it is like so. There's some language in here when the the older son says to the father, "This son of yours," and I, and I hear him actually mocking the dad because he was like the dad earlier was like, "This son of mine." Uh, he was, he was dead and he's, and he's found, he's he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And the son is like this son of yours. And he won't even admit that the guy is his own brother. But then I love how the father turns it around. And I just hear him like gently, meekly, like with a twinkle in his eye, when he says this brother of yours, he puts it back on him. He doesn't say this Mm -hmm. son of mine. He says Mm -hmm. this brother of yours. Mm -hmm. And I just hear it as he belongs to me. Or he belongs to he he belongs to you as well as to me he's not just my son he's your brother and he belongs to you because you both belong to me and if if and i think for those of us who are in the throes of our self righteousness and that being the thing that is keeping us outside the party because we look at these people and we say that son of yours or we think oh, they're we're grumbling and maybe it's because we're trying to uphold something that we think God is calling to us uh, us to uphold. Maybe we're trying to be set apart in the way that we feel God has called us to be set apart, and we're worried that people are going to taint it, and they're going to tear it all down. And at the end of the day, this parable, I think Jesus is saying, it, it doesn't matter. It's your brother. It's your sister. They're found. Come on in the party. Let's go. You can be found too.
2: And I wonder if it's kind of like, a, uh, like the father saying, I consider him my son and I'm in charge here. So that makes him your brother. <laughs> and he was dead, but he's alive again. So we had to celebrate. Yeah. And I don't like, there's not a, the, we is not necessarily specific here. Like as the father is speaking, he could just mean everyone else who is there plus the father. But I, w- I want to say like we, as in everyone there, including the other brother.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And actually even bigger, like, that, I think there is a redemptive aspect to this. Like, if, we, if we're thinking of the community and we're tracking with that whole line of thought of they're going to attack this kid when he comes back to the village and the father has to run out and save him. If you throw a party with a fatted calf, that's a lot of food. Who are you feeding? Right. You're feeding the whole village. All the people that we were concerned, they're going to, like, pounce on this kid. They're now. I don't know that this is the case, but I like the reading that is all of those people. They have had their minds, their hearts changed, also by the compassion of the Father, and they're there celebrating and partying. And maybe that's part of why
2: he had to go so overboard with it.
0: Mm. Oh yeah, to
2: communicate to them like, no, I am really serious. This guy is actually forgiven. I actually accept him. Right. We are going to celebrate. Yeah. You are not going to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not. I'm not just being polite out on the road, and then we're going to bring him back to the house and stone him in the back. Yeah. Like, no, this is actually what I'm doing. Yeah, man. <sighs> all right. That's, all I, so that's, all, I, that's
0: all I got. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, <laughs> that's not even four hours, but I feel like I could go talk about it for four hours. <laughs> well, we absolutely could. the The relevance of this parable is... It just
1: renders me speechless.
0: There are so many more. I mean, literally, like I, I, I could have 20 pages of notes and uh, about so many aspects of it. It's brilliant. It is brilliant on so many levels. And I think we need to give Jesus more credit for being actually really freaking smart and really brilliant, uh, <laughs> like as a, as just, uh, I, OK, I'm, I'm I'm, done. I'm going to I'm going to be a mini Marty now and say, Brent, you better get us out of here.
2: <laughs> we should ju- we, we should give Jesus more credit. You're right. You're right. It's true. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, uh,
2: in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Reed will be hanging out on the Baymont Slack. Uh, Lurking. Uh, I mean, I mean that's what that's what he says. He says he's going to be there after. after Occasionally. The so it's been a great conversation. You can find uh, our show notes at BaymoDiscipleship.com. Be sure to check out those books uh, if you haven't already read Bailey or Capone. Like check those out, and then you know we've got the Pharisees to dig into as well now. So. Plenty of stuff to keep you busy and then we'll be back Next week to talk about The parable of the rich fool And uh, and close out Our our uh, parable Anthology for the time being So thanks for joining us on the Mall Podcast We will talk to you again soon